If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome back to Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. So today's show is a little bit of a hybrid between the usual monologue and a guest interview. So you can think of it as a buy one, get one. So first, we'll dive into the history of the opioid epidemic. Look at the disconnect between research-recommended opioid treatment versus the most commonly administered treatment. And we'll talk with podcast host and TEDx speaker Eric Zimmer, who, at the age of 24, was homeless, addicted to heroin, and facing long jail sentences. Today, he's a seasoned behavior coach and host of the excellent podcast, The One You Feed, based on an old parable about two metaphorical wolves who battle within us. Okay, first, let's talk history. To paraphrase the talking heads, how did we get here? How did the opioid epidemic become the opioid epidemic? Well, let's begin where we are now. Every day, 130 Americans die from an opioid overdose. And in 2017, that added up to more than 47,000 people. It's to the point where, for the first time in decades, life expectancy in the U.S. is decreasing, driven in part by opioid overdoses. Now, the opioid epidemic didn't just develop from one seed. It grew from many. And one sprouted in 1980, when a five-sentence letter to the editor was published in one of the most prestigious medical journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, which stated that opioids were not addictive. And like a game of telephone gone bad, what followed was hundreds of citations of the letter justifying increased prescription of opioids. But few of the citations noted that the letter referred to inpatients prescribed opioids during brief and closely monitored hospital stays. The letter was never meant to apply to opioids in an outpatient setting, nor for long-term use. Meanwhile, another seed was planted. Many doctors and pain organizations, including the World Health Organization, began a well-intentioned campaign to treat pain. From breakthrough cancer pain to chronic backache, they said pain was undertreated and there was no reason to have to suffer. The arguments were all very logical and humane and quickly spread across the healthcare industry. And a final seed. After OxyContin was introduced by Purdue Pharma in 1995, 
the manufacturer began aggressively marketing the drug to doctors. And according to a New York Times investigation, the company knew of significant abuse of OxyContin within months of its release, but concealed the evidence for years. Therefore, aggressive marketing, along with shady business practices, combined with a movement to relieve patients' pain, plus the carte blanche interpretation of the New England Journal letter, ignited the first wave of the opioid crisis. The second wave began in 2010, as early efforts to cut back on prescriptions made opioids harder to get. So many people turned to heroin, which in turn led to a skyrocketing of heroin deaths. And then the third wave hit hard in 2013, when illicitly manufactured synthetic fentanyl became widely available. If you look at a graph of fentanyl deaths per year throughout the opioid epidemic, you'll see a near vertical line shooting upwards starting in 2013. Okay, so where does this leave us? Well, today, the biggest challenge is how to help those who are currently addicted to opioids, an estimated 2 million people. But there is surprisingly little connection between the gold standard of treatment and what actually happens in many addiction treatment centers. So research finds that something called medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, is most effective. Like methadone, suboxone, or buprenorphine, which prevents withdrawal symptoms and reduces cravings. However, around 90% of treatment facilities use a counseling-only abstinence-based approach. And this is similar to traditional abstinence-based treatment of alcoholism. But there is a fatal flaw. Opioids change the brain in very different ways than alcohol, cocaine, or other drugs. How? Well, prolonged opioid use alters brain regions that regulate reward, learning, memory, decision-making, and stress response, among others. And those brain changes don't automatically snap back after detoxing off opioids. Furthermore, mix those brain changes with possible mental illness or trauma, and barriers to getting treatment like the price of treatment and finding a doctor who can prescribe MAT, and it's tough to make changes stick. Now, medication-assisted treatment isn't miraculous. Tapering can be difficult and take years. But the numbers speak for themselves. A landmark study followed 375 people on MAT. And after 42 months, 32% were off both opioids and MAT, 29% were still on MAT but not using opioids, and 39% had relapsed and were using opioids again. Now, there are two big objections to medication-assisted treatment from abstinence-based treatment facilities. One common refrain is that MAT replaces one addiction for another. And another is that suboxone or methadone, if abused, can cause a high. But the numbers speak for themselves. In the MAT study, 39% had relapsed after 42 months. However, according to prospective studies, in abstinence-only based treatment, more than 90% of people relapse within 12 months. Now, not all is lost with abstinence-only treatment. A study in the journal Addiction found that more frequent attendance at 12-step group meetings, like AA or NA, went along with higher abstinence rates. However, it's unclear if the group contributed to staying clean and sober, or if people committed to abstinence were more likely to stick with a 12-step program. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. 
when the truth is... I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say... Hang it in there. Because... If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Now, no matter what path you're on, how to navigate the long, challenging road of addiction recovery. Well, at the age of 24, Eric Zimmer was homeless, addicted to heroin, and facing jail time. In the years since, he has found a way to recover from addiction and build a life worth living for himself. He currently hosts the award-winning podcast, The One You Feed, which is based on an old parable about two wolves at battle within us. Eric has also been a behavior coach for the past 20 years, and has coached hundreds of people from around the world to make real, lasting change in their lives. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So, today we are going to solve the opioid crisis in 20 minutes. So, Perfect. But yes, Perfect. exactly. So, seriously, listeners uh, know that I just talked for the first half of the episode about how most of the treatment in this country is abstinence-based, which relies heavily on willpower. Now, given the brain changes associated with opioid use, this seems like a losing proposition and probably results in having to go through the process again and again. But is there a role for, call it what you will, determination, resolve, or willpower? Or are we simply at the mercy of our brain chemistry? That's a great question. And I think it's, it's one of those things that is a paradoxical answer because on one level, at the end of the day, recovery is about not picking up your drink or your drug, right? So at the end of the day, there is a very concrete action to take. Don't do this thing, right? So there is there is a role for making a conscious choice, right? But the analogy that that I like to use, and I think it's, I used it with somebody I'm working with recently who's dealing with an addiction issue. And more and more researchers are looking at addiction as sort of a learning disorder. It's a, we don't know how to stay sober. And so the analogy I used for my friend was that, think about learning to live life without drugs as learning French, learning a language, right? Hmm. In the beginning, you just can't speak the language at all. And in her case, what's happening is she's, she's slowly staying sober more and more. And so I said, you know, think of it like this. You're like, 
you're like somebody who started learning French and, and now you've learned enough. You can go into the bakery and order a croissant in French, right? And you learn a little bit more and now you can go and you can go to a French language class and understand a lot of what the teacher is saying, right? But then one day you're walking down the road and you bump into a a French speaker and they start talking at you really fast and it all crumbles, right? And you think, oh my goodness, I'm never going to learn French, right? I think recovery can be like this. You mentioned that a lot of people have to try over and over. That was my experience. I had to try multiple times. And I think each time I learned a little bit more about how to do it, a little bit more about how to cope with life without substance, how to handle this situation and how to handle that situation until eventually I was fluent. And so if we take that analogy a little bit further, what's the role of willpower? Well, if you were learning a language, you wouldn't say to somebody after them picking up, you know, a a French language book in a week and they couldn't speak French, you wouldn't say, you just don't have any willpower. You, you know, it's never going to work. What's the matter with you? Pull yourself up. Right. So that wouldn't make any sense. And so in that way, willpower doesn't make sense. But if you're going to learn French, you have to keep trying. And that takes some degree of willpower that takes some degree of persistence. So I think there's a role for both. But it's not as simple as just don't do it. It's, you know, the question of how much choice does an addict really have is a question nobody can answer. And I think the answer is somewhere between very little and a fair amount. But we still need to learn how and it takes a lot of support to recover. So I don't think it's as simple as willpower by any stretch of the imagination And I also think there is a role for people having some degree of willpower in that they just keep trying. So I'm really glad that you mentioned needing support. How can others help support somebody who is learning how to live a life without substances? There are structured things like 12-step groups like NA or AA or other support groups. But then there are also, you know, the friends and family and other loved ones of somebody who is struggling with addiction. So what can somebody who loves someone with addiction do to help support them as they learn to live a life without drugs? Boy, that is a tough question. (laughs) Solve that, yes. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) a really big question. Because i use another example. So I have a, a friend who has been struggling with addiction, right? And his wife keeps coming to me. We're all pretty close and keeps saying, what should I do? What should I do? What mm-hmm. should I do? And my answer to her most of the time is whatever will keep you sane. Hmm. Because living with And being close to somebody who's in active addiction will make the person who's in that situation with them psychologically ill, right? Mm -hmm. It's you're living with a crazy person. You are living in circumstances that were just, it's a, it's an awful mixture of disappointment and anger and uncertainty and fear and not knowing what to do. So the first answer of what do you do if you've got somebody in your life? love who's struggling is really think about getting help yourself, right? Hmm. Think about finding some support for yourself so that you don't go down with the ship because it happens. There's a reason that 12-step programs have, you know, in the case of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's Al-Anon. It's a huge program and it's a huge program because the spouses and family members of alcoholics really suffer and struggle. So on that level, I think that's the first piece. As to what you can do, I don't know that there's any answer because for every person that you say, Show them tough love, give them consequences, kick them out of the house. Uh, 
and that works sometimes. And then there's lots of other people who say, just love them and support them. And sometimes that works. And I think it's a position of being in a great deal of lack of control because ultimately the addict needs to decide that they want help and they want support. However, I don't think that shaming an addict is ever helpful Mm -hmm. because addiction is to some large degree a disease of shame. And the other thing is we will ask addicts, why are you doing that? What is wrong with you? Hmm. And the truth is the addict has no idea. (laughs) We don't know when we're in addiction. We're, We're as baffled as everybody else. Like what on earth is going on here? So shaming an addict is always a bad idea, right? So I think I think that's one piece of advice I feel pretty confident in. Love the addict. You don't have to love the behavior. And then decide what will keep you sane. She asks, should I kick him out? Should I let him stay? I, I don't know. Hmm. Because for some people, kicking him out's the right thing. For other people, it's not the right thing. There's no way to know. So what will make you sane? Makes sense. Regardless of what treatment people choose, medication-assisted treatment or maybe a non-medication treatment, how do we turbocharge that? How can we help change our habits and figure out how to live and maintain a life without drugs? Yeah, that's another. These are all huge questions that we're trying to to sandwich into small bites here. I think that you're right. No one treatment is the right thing for everybody because addiction, although we use the disease model concept and I think it's useful it is not a disease in the same way that cancer is, right? It's what it is really is a syndrome of lots of different symptoms and things that all come together in this exacerbated problem, right? A lot of people who have addiction are also dealing with, you know, various forms of severe mental illness. Trauma is a huge driver of addiction. So there's all these different things. So to say like this thing works for that person, this thing works for that person. The most important piece of advice I think that is really fundamental. And it's one of the first things that people hear when they go into an AA meeting. And I'm not saying AA is the way everybody should go, but what they say is keep coming back. Mm -hmm. And that is the most fundamental piece of advice. Keep coming back to your recovery. Keep trying. Try this. Try that. Try this. Try this in combination with that. Try that in combination with this. If we keep trying, we have a chance of getting over an addiction, but it does take, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of focus and, um, but it's absolutely doable. Millions and millions and millions of people do it, have overcome addictions of all types. So it's doable. But I think the piece of advice that can be really solid is keep coming back. And I think what you said earlier, this idea of don't do it alone. It is really, really hard to do alone. There are, you hear stories of people that do it, but they are definitely the exception. And if you dig deeper, you might find that the addiction is not as severe as in other people. So find help, whether that's AA, uh, NA, some sort of 12-step program, um, smart recovery, refuge recovery. I mean, there's so many recovery movements. There's online groups. There's lots of different things. You can get psychological and group counseling through treatment centers. Those are all available. And my experience is the people who really take advantage of as much help as they can get are the ones that do better. So take every opportunity for help that you can get and just keep trying over and over. And eventually 
there's a really good chance you'll get there. So I think that's the most important piece of advice that applies to medically assisted treatment, non-medically assisted treatment, whatever you're going to do is to keep coming back to your own recovery and not to give up. Because there are moments in that you're like, I did everything I could and here I am using again and it's so discouraging and it feels hopeless and terrifying. And if in that moment you can just find a way back to try again, that's the important piece. If I may ask you, now you've mentioned that it took you a number of times to get off of heroin, you detox a number of times. What was the most helpful for you to keep showing up, to keep coming back, to keep recommitting to being clean? If you could look back and say like, okay, I wish I had known X or Y at the beginning, what would those things be? Mm, That's a great question. I think that I found the level of support that I needed. And in my case, my level of support was inpatient treatment for a period of time and then living in a halfway house. Like Mm -hmm. I, I was one of those people who needed a lot of support. Now I had pretty much burnt my life to the ground, right? I was homeless. I was a heroin addict. I weighed a hundred pounds. I had hepatitis C. I was probably going to go to jail for a long time. So, you know, pretty low bottom, not, not as low as, as others, as many, but pretty low. And so in my case, lots and lots of support. What do I wish I knew? I think that I wish I knew what I just said, which is to keep coming back Mm -hmm. because I would get discouraged and give up. Mm -hmm. There used to be a phrase, I don't hear it as often anymore, but in my younger years, I used to hear once an addict, always an addict. Hmm. And that's what happens is heroin addicts just die that way. That was the, the mythology that I was hearing through literature and music and, and just the scene I was in. And that was not a helpful mythology for me, right? Because what it ended up with for me several times was really giving up and going, this didn't work for me. I guess this is the rest of my life until eventually it got so bad again. And I would somehow get a spark of hope and I would, I would try again. But I think a very important metaphor or very important idea is to put recovery first. It's a cliche, but it's so true. Like everything else in life depends upon recovery for addicts, right? In my case, nothing else worked when I wasn't clean. And so I would get a little bit clean, like a week clean. And then I'd suddenly decide it was time to repair my entire life that I had been busy screwing up for Mm. years and Mm -hmm. years and years, right? All right, it's time to get back to college and I need to get a job and I need to do this and I need to do that. And then boom, I'm using again, right? And so the, the last time, the time that took, I just, that was it. Like, I am doing this until I am sober. It is going to be the number one priority in my life. Now, again, that's hard because you might have kids, you might have other responsibilities, but the reality for an addict is if we don't take care of the primary problem of addiction, we will not be able to take care of any of the other things. And if we're talking about opioids, there's a chance you won't be around to take care of anything, right? right? It's pretty serious. It's far more serious even than it was in my day with the introduction of fentanyl and mm-hmm. all that. I mean, it is every time is rolling the dice in a in a more significant way than when I was doing. Of course, overdose was always an option and, and I did a couple times and people close to me did, but it's even more, more dangerous today. And so I think that the principle of like, this is my most important task in life. Let me figure this out. Everything else will fall into place over time. But if we can't figure that out, nothing falls into place and and very, very possibly we won't be around to fix it. 
So back when you were talking about your story, you used a phrase uh, of low bottom. Can you define low bottom versus high bottom for our listeners? And then this is another hard question. If there's not the motivation of a low bottom, like you haven't been arrested or you haven't Mm -hmm. lost your kids or something to that extent, how can somebody who is relatively high functioning, perhaps a high bottom, someone who is addicted and has experienced a high bottom, how did they motivate to turn their life around? It's a great, it's a great question. I think high bottom, low bottom is a term that uh, had I reflected on it more, I might not have used because it's a habitual term and it's one that I'm not sure is, is a very useful term. Mm. It, it refers to how far you have to go mm-hmm. before you're done. But the problem is that everybody's bottom is different, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, some people's bottom is you know, death, right? I know people who walk out of a 10 year jail term, get high that day and go back the next day for 10 years. I mean, that's pretty pretty low bottom bottom. to use the term, right? But I actually have experience in this because when I got sober off of opioids, I stayed sober for eight years. And then I decided that I could drink. So I was, I was complete abstinence, all substances. That's what I needed. Right. And so I decided I could drink. It, It sounds like you used decided with air quotes. Uh, back when you said that, so well, kind of. Okay. Actually, it was a very conscious decision. Interesting. I mean, okay. I had been sober okay. eight years. I looked at it and I went, you know, I was young. I was using heroin, mm. which we all agree is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Like I've been so, through so much therapy and learning. I'm making good decisions in all aspects of my life. This should work, mm-hmm. right? So I tried it and it didn't work. But here's what was interesting: it was that when I eventually got sober my bottom looked nothing the same, Hmm. right? I I had just gotten hired and was making more money than I ever had. I had a nice house. I had a nice car. I was respected. I mean, everything was okay on the outside, but inside, Hmm. I knew that I was as out of control as I was before, Hmm. right? And so what I would would say to myself, and, and you can ask yourself this question if you're in this position, well, I haven't had all those things happen to me. There's a great thing that, that uh, I heard early in recovery, which was just add the word yet to it, right? Yes. Well, I've never gotten a DUI yet, mm-hmm. right? So in my case, I looked at it and I went, okay, do I need to get in a car accident with my son in the car when I've been drinking to decide that this is enough, right? Hmm. Do I need to be fired from my job for drinking before I decide this is enough? I know that's where all this is going, right? I, I hmm. know what's mm-hmm. going to happen. I know inside I am not controlling this. I am out of control. So if I'm out of control, that means I don't get to decide what's ultimately going to happen here. And so for me, it was harder to get sober that second time because the consequences weren't as severe and they weren't as debilitating. Mm-hmm. But I could use some I could use some imagination and really look at it and go, that's what's coming. Those things haven't happened yet, but that's just a matter of chance for me, right? And so I think that that's one way to look at it. The other one, we had a guest on, her name's Catherine Gray, and she wrote a book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, and she's incredible. And she has a phrase, something to the extent of, you don't need to ask yourself, like, am I an addict? Have I hit my bottom? You can just ask yourself, do I think my life would be better without this substance? Hmm. Like, it's a very clear-cut way of just sort of looking at it and going, Uh, Yeah, probably so. This thing is causing me a lot of problems. Life would probably be better without it. That can be enough of an impetus, just like that. Like, you know, so I think there are different ways to frame it. But I think this myth that we have to hit a certain bottom is that it's a myth, right? Because the, the bottom doesn't exist. It's not a, like I said, some people's bottom is infinite, right? And some people's is, all right, I, uh, 
my wife got mad at me for the third time this week about drinking and I'm tired of it. Like, okay, whatever it is for you is enough. Thinking that I need to get to this point where it's worse and worse and worse is a fallacy. It can be motivating, but it's a fallacy. And most of us, if we look and ask ourselves, am I in control? That's the fundamental question. Because if we're not, if we're not calling the shots about when and how much we use something, then we're headed towards something bad because we are, we are at the mercy of this substance. So Ab, sounds like the, the questions to ask are not necessarily what has happened to me and is this bad enough, but am I in control and would my life be better without this? Yes, exactly. Yep. I think that it's consequences are motivating, but they don't have to be the only motivator. You know, there are lots of other ways to motivate, which is to live a better life. And, you know, I think that people are always like, do I have a problem with alcohol? Do I have a problem with drugs? And I, a way to look at it is, are you having problems in your life because of it? If so, then yes, you do have a problem. How do we define that? And am I an addict? Am I an alcoholic? All, all those distinctions are, are like a continuum, right? They're not this place that like you cross this magic line and today you are and yesterday you aren't. But if you're having problems in your life because of your substance use, you have a problem and it's worth addressing it. And that, I think, is a just a beautiful, perfect place to leave it. I think this will be so helpful to our listeners. And thank you so much, Eric Zimmer, for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed it. Eric Zimmer is a behavior coach and the host of the podcast, The One You Feed. His story and his work have been featured through TEDx, Mind Body Green, Elephant Journal, the BBC, and Brain Pickings. For an excellent and moving long read on the opioid crisis, I highly recommend Jason Cherkis's Huffington Post piece titled Dying to be Free, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And you can find a link in the online transcript of this episode, or you can just search online for HuffPo Dying to be Free. Savvy Psychologist is audio engineered by Steve Rickyberg and edited by Karen Hertzberg. As always, Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week for a happier, healthier mind. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.